0: This is uh, Reformation Sunday. This is the, uh, the time we think about, take a moment to look back in history and say we are standing on the shoulders of giants. We are standing in the light that, that had truly been darkened. Uh, we speak of the dark ages in, in European history. And that was a time that wasn't just uh, really intellectual darkness, but especially spiritual and moral darkness. For a thousand years, really, the truth was suppressed. The gospel truth was suppressed, lost and forgotten. They were, they, were, they were never totally stamped out, but it was in little pockets here and there. But it was this monk, Martin Luther, and what happened on October 31, 1517, that we, we considered the, the, the start of the Reformation, when it really went public, he nailed. He he he. would become so frustrated by the errors in the church, and in particular, recently a, a monk had been sent from Rome. They were trying to raise money to uh, build buildings in, for the Vatican, and so to do that they were selling indulgences. If you would uh, pay this price, if you would, as they say, drop the coin in the pot, and they even had a little poem when the as soon as the coin coin in the uh, pot clinks. The soul in purgatory will no longer sink. In other words, and so they would—they very passionate, effect wonderful preaching if you if you like emotional, manipulative preaching, and and just said, "Really, really, your your mother is suffering in paradise, and right now one coin could purchase her freedom and instant access to heaven. Would you really hold off on that?" Luther was infuriated. You don't buy salvation. And so he went out and he posted, in the way they posted notices back then. That wasn't Facebook and that wasn't Twitter. Uh, you would post notices on the uh, church door. I can remember in college that often you'd see there were these places where notices went, and sometimes telephone poles. And I, and sometimes I thought there was more paper on the pole than there was wood, you know, because one layer after another of notices. Well, back then you would notice you would post something on the church door. And so he, he put up a notice of 95 theses or statements for debate. It was in Latin. This wasn't meant to be a, a public broadcast. Uh, it was meant to be a call to the scholars. And Luther was thoroughly convinced if we can get together, open our Bibles and wrestle with these truths, he thought he'd bring the church, they would awaken and say, Martin, Brother Martin, Monk Martin, um, thank you. We forgot. We'll go back to preaching the gospel. It didn't work that way. In fact, what ended up happening is some of his students took those notices, that, that notice of debate in Latin on the church door, translated it to German, had it printed up, and before you knew it, that was the spark that started the forest fire of the Gospel Reformation. Well, that's why we are doing what we're doing today, just to remember that. Let me always, you know, whenever I'm teaching the Bible, I always like to give this context, context, and context. And the context of this event was really two major events influenced everything. First of all, in 1453, so 1517, Reformation begins. 1453, the Muslims finally conquered Constantinople. Uh, they were, you know, the, the, the march continued uh, towards Europe. But when Constantinople fell, and that was the eastern uh, capital of Rome, of, of Rome, if you will, um, the scholars fled the city. And when they fled, they brought with them their, their manuscripts, their Greek ancient manuscripts, Greek and Latin. When those reached Europe, that caused such a stir in the academies and in the colleges. They said, this is wonderful. We can now go back and study the primary sources. And so they started studying the Latin, the, 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 the scholars, the philosophers in Greek and Latin. And they started reading the Bible in the original languages. It was hugely significant. And so, in fact, it was, first of all, it was a general thing. All scholarship. The, you know, again, philosophy and, and all those things. But the theme of the day was ad fontes in Latin, which means go back to the source, go back to the fount out of which all these truths came. But part of that was people, the, the scholars, the monks started reading the Bible itself. Not what the, the church fathers said about it, but the Bible itself in the language of the Bible. And that hugely Impacted Martin Luther. Another key background. So, first was the, the fall of Constantinople and the bringing of the Greek New Testament to Europe. That was 1453, and in the 1450s, a man named Johannes Gutenberg uh, did something very important. Now, some of you are thinking that sounds like a sports car. Is that a was was that the four, was that the beginning of Porsche? No. Johannes Gutenberg invented the movable type printing press, and that meant when they it was it made printing much easier. Instead of having to cut out a wood engraving and every page is personally engraved, they now they could take little pieces, uh, letters, put them together, and quickly print books and and documents and spread them out. It's kind of like the internet today. Uh, when, When that took off, incredibly, information started spreading so quickly or like radio or like TV, it was one of those game changing bits of technology. So when Martin Luther put out those 95 statements of challenge, there was a way that that could get out. It was translated to German and copies were made and sold and spread throughout Germany and ultimately through Europe for a time. With all the printing that was happening, it was Martin Luther's books that were the the biggest seller in Europe. So that was the foundation that led up to it. Those two major events, but also in the background, the church had become incredibly morally corrupt. You were, you know, if you became a priest or a monk, you took a vow of poverty, but you could live very well. And so people were, one of the problems was that you could actually buy a church office I'd like to be the, the minister of that church. And then that would guarantee you a certain amount of income, even if you never went to the church. And so, so there are those that would, they would buy up churches of which they were the pastor or buy up bishoprics. And so all the offerings that came in, they would get a cut. And so it was just a time. And there was uh, celibacy was a requirement for the priests, but many of them had dozens of children. It was just—it was just a time of moral and spiritual corruption and darkness. In fact, the motto of the Reformation is a Latin phrase again: "Post Tenebras Lux," after darkness, light. And so, in that context, we saw things happening—the morning star of the dawn of Reformation, the, the first light was a man named John Wycliffe. We think of him as the Wycliffe Bible Translators. He was a scholar, and, and he started studying the Bible in Latin. And here's the key again and again. We'll see the theme. When, when they went back to not studying the fathers, but the Bible, he started seeing. wait a minute, this isn't what my church has been teaching. And so he started translating the Bible in that uh uh, into english that was a crime that was a capital offense at that time the latin was only the bible was only available in latin and it wasn't meant for the people the church would tell the people what they need to know the church would do the bible reading if there was any so he started reading he started translating and he started teaching the gospel because there it was in the scripture And, and, and he started teaching people, and they went out and went preaching. Of course, when he translated, the Bible had to be was still being copied by hand, and so it was a slow process. Others came along and learned from him. A, a man named John Huss in what was then called Bohemia, modern-day Czech Republic, he met people who studied under Wycliffe. They brought back the gospel. He translated the Bible into his language. Uh, he preached a gospel. And he was burned at the stake for the crime of preaching the gospel. But there were were beginnings. And so I I don't want to give Martin Luther unnecessary credit. These things were starting to stir. And I see that's a work of the Holy Spirit. So Martin Luther came along, used of God. He, He was raised in a well-to-do, common family. His father was a manager in a mine, sent him off to university, was hoping he'd become a lawyer. They didn't have Social Security back then, so you had kids. Get them a good job, and his whole jo- thing is, Martin, you become a good, wealthy lawyer, and Papa is going to be okay. <laughs> and so he sent him off, and he one day he was wandering, through, heading through the woods back to school. A terrible storm came out. He thought for sure he would die in the lightning, and he cried out to St. Anne, the, the, the patron saint of the miners and said, if you save me, I'll be a monk and serve God the rest of my life. He didn't die, took his words faithfully, went to being a monk, and, and his father was greatly disappointed. And so, as Martin Luther started learning the, 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 the teachings of the church, he was increasingly crushed and despairing Because the more he learned of God's holiness and righteousness, the more he realized, I can never measure up. When he he read and heard of the Sermon on the Mount, a lot of people say, oh, isn't that a wonderful sermon? It killed him. It killed him. Who can live this perfectly? And if that's what it takes to get to heaven, then I am condemned and there is no hope. The more he learned, the more he despaired, the more he knew of his own heart and, and God's holiness, he would go to confession. You know, a lot of people would go to confession. Maybe some of you are raised in a Catholic church. You can get it done in a couple of minutes, go out, do your Hail Mary's, and you're done. He'd be in there for hours. Poor confessor that had to listen to all that. And as he walked down the hall, he thought, oh, wait a minute, I forgot something. He'd go back for another couple of hours. And, and, and it was just, but he was in constant despair. He was in constant despair and constant hopelessness. Finally, they thought we've got to do something with this, Martin Luther. We're gonna make him so busy, he has no time to think about these things. So they sent him off to a new university in Wittenberg, Germany, and and he was to be a professor of Bible. He was a sharp and scholarly man, and so he, he said about his task, and here is where the beginnings were. He was a devout, convinced Augustinian monk of the Roman Catholic Church. But as a professor of Bible, he started reading and studying the Bible in the original languages. When I emphasize the original languages, it's not like you know, reading English was fine, but it forced him to, to think, what does that word mean? What does that word mean? What does that word mean? What does the sentence mean? That's one of the things I feel like when I'm reading the Bible in the original, it slows me down and I have to pay attention. And I'm sure I'm the only one in this room that when I do my Bible reading in English and all that, I can get through a whole page and wonder, did I just read that? sometimes I'll go back and say, let's start over. (laughs) I'll try and pay attention this time. So he was reading the text. And the first book he was assigned to to teach was Psalms, the book of Psalms. Um, and here's what he said as, uh, uh, when he spoke about the Psalms. He would say, I would say what I think of the Psalms in a few words, thus I believe for my part that there is no book under heaven, either of histories or examples, to be compared with the book of Psalms. And then skipping down, he goes on to say, For in the book of Psalms, we have not the life of one of the saints only, but we have the experience of Christ himself, the head of all the saints. For he is set forth in those psalms. So as he read the psalms, he was seeing Christ, Christ, Christ. In every psalm, he he saw Christ. And so here's this despairing and depressing and depressed monk, and that must have been a hard professor to listen to. He came to Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? He couldn't comprehend it. It's been expressed this way. What could be the meaning of this? Christ evidently felt himself to be forsaken. Abandoned by God, deserted. So so he read this and said, Wait a minute, this is Christ. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The first thing that struck him was that Christ knew what Martin felt forsaken, despairing, isolated from God, under the judgment of, of, of a God who cannot be pleased. He read, he read the cry of Christ from the, call, uh, from the cross, and Martin Luther said, He knows what I feel every day. But then he started thinking how can it be that Christ would feel isolated, forsaken, abandoned, condemned by God? What can that be? He's the Holy One. Again, here's someone, one of his biographers says this is what he was thinking. Why should Christ have known such desperations? Luther knew perfectly well why he himself had them. He was weak in the presence of the mighty. He had blasphemed. But Christ was not weak. Christ was not impure. Christ was not impious. Why was he overwhelmed with desolation? And then it hit him. The only reason he could be isolated and condemned from God was because he has taken upon himself our guilt. That was the cry of Christ bearing my sin. that was a huge concept. Why would Christ do that except he was paying my the penalty I owed. Christ was despairing and desolate and and abandoned and condemned for my guilt so that I wouldn't have to experience that. And so so this was this was overwhelming to Martin Luther. He started to understand the concept that Christ when he died on the cross, was paying the penalty of my sin as my substitute. Up to now, he's been thinking, I have got to work and work and work to earn my salvation. And here he's saying, Christ did it. He had worked hard. This is what Luther said. I was a good monk. And I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. And he even says, everybody that knew me would say, this is, you're being honest, M- Luther. You were the best of them all. His, his fastings, he would literally beat his body to show he, that he was, he was not surrendering to the flesh. All that he said, he said if, if monkery could do it, I was in. But the more monkery I did, the more despairing, because I knew it wasn't enough. He was honest about the fallenness of his human heart. So that's one of our problems. Sometimes we do not know the sinfulness of our own heart. He did. And he realized he could not satisfy the demands of God's justice on his own. And here in Psalm 22, it hit him. Jesus paid it. And so he started singing the song, Jesus Paid It All. all No, he didn't know that song. We sing those things so lightly, to him was this incredible discovery. Where has this been hiding? In the Bible. This was powerfully life-changing. As he said, the only answer must be that Christ took to himself the iniquity of us all. He who was without sin for our sakes became sin. And so identified himself with us so as to participate in our alienation. Basically, he's quoting, he's thinking also of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Well, he kept preaching and teaching through the book of Psalms, and he came to chapter 18, 118. Psalm 118. And here's what he says about this one. Uh, He says, this is my psalm, my chosen psalm. I love them all. I love all Holy Scripture, which is my consolation in my life. But this psalm is nearest my heart. And I have a peculiar right to call it mine. It has saved me from many a pressing danger from which nor emperor, nor kings, nor sages, nor saints could have saved me. It is my friend, dearer to me than all the honors and power of the earth. I think he likes this psalm. And, and so, again, here's this, here's this, you know, he's cloistered up in his little, uh, at his desk, reading the scripture, and as the more he meditated, and this, through his life, he kept coming back and back to Psalm 118, but in particular, one verse leapt out from him. Now, again, Psalm 118 is, is this wonderful messianic psalm. It's Psalm 118, they're quoting when Jesus was coming down on Palm Sunday. You know, Hosanna, West, Hosanna, welcome, Uh, He who comes in the name of the Lord. That's Psalm 118. But verse 17 in particular, it was interesting to him. I shall not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. Now he wasn't saying that he wasn't going to die physically, but through his ministry, his life was threatened constantly. He thoroughly expected that he could easily die. And he thought of Wycliffe. They would have killed him, but he died too quickly. So they dug up his bones and burned them just to kind of, well, at least we can do this. He thought of Huss and others who were imprisoned, who died horribly for the sake of the gospel. And he thought, they're coming for me. And they were. But this verse, he wasn't saying they wouldn't succeed, but his point was, When it says, I shall not die but live and declare the works of the Lord, that was his confidence. I'm going to live until God's finished me preaching the gospel he wants me to preach. I shall not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. So so that's why, um, you know, he says in the psalm we just sang, a mighty fortress is our God. He says, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. And so he was saying, come on, come for me. You're not going to get me until God's finished. I am going to preach the truth. And so that was his confidence. He, he, was, in, he was immortal until he'd finished God's work. And so that's and, and, and his life wasn't precious to him. He put it completely in God's hands. He said, I'm here serving you until you're done. I have to mention one other psalm when about four years before he died. He, he wrote in the Bible, Psalm 119, verse 92. Psalm 119, verse 92. It says, Unless your law had been my delight, I would then have perished in my affliction. Martin Luther battled despair and depression all his life. He wasn't paranoid. They really did hate him. They were really hunting him down. And he battled depression. What was his answer? The scriptures. Unless your law had been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Psalm 119 verse 92. And so God's word was his, his bread and butter. What was his meat and potatoes. It was his life, it was his joy, it was his strength. And so the Psalms were, became precious to him. And that was when he started understanding gospel truth. Christ died in our place. The other central text is when he got over to Romans. After he preached, taught through Romans, then his assignment was to teach. Uh, after he taught through Psalms, then his assignment was to teach the book of Romans. To teach the book of Romans, and in particular, he was hammered by Romans 1.17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, you, that's jumping in the middle of a context, and you know how dangerous that is. What's he talking about? In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Let's go back to verse 16. For I am not ashamed, the Apostle Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God to salvation. For everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it, in the gospel of salvation, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Luther had increasingly and had been consistently seeing the righteousness of God as condemnation, law. God's requirements that man could never meet and at one point, he, his confessor will ask him, but don't you love God? And he says, love him. I hate him. Because he felt he could never have hope. And that's the essence of despair. But when he came to Romans 1.17 and was reading about the gospel, there was that incredible statement. In it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The just shall live by faith. The just shall live. Not be destroyed by his righteousness, but the, 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 the just shall live. How? Not by works. He's been trying that. Not by devotion and monkery and, and all the tasks because the more he did the more he knew his heart hadn't changed no the just shall live by faith actually that's quoting that's john i mean that's paul quoting from the book of habakkuk in the old testament habakkuk 2:4 behold the proud his soul is not upright in him but the just shall live by faith that verse is quoted three times in the new testament here in romans 1:17 paul quotes it again in galatians 3:11 Luther loved the book of Galatians. For one thing, it was, it was a short compilation of the gospel. He called it his Katie. He loved his wife Katie very much, and so he called Galatians after his wife's name. Uh, Catherine was her name, but, but he called her Katie, and he called Galatians his Katie. He loved this book. But here in Galatians 3.11, we read, But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by faith. That, that's Paul writing what, what, what Luther needed to know. It's not by works of the law. You know, if you're trying to earn God's approval by what you do, by your obedience, by your, your giving, whatever it might be, your service, you will never measure up. It's as if someone gave you a shovel, took you to the beach and said, get the sand out of here. It's the harder you try, the more you despair. But when he could, and the problem was, see, he was reading the church fathers and, and reading church tradition, the later church fathers in particular, and they kept emphasizing these concepts If it's all about um, You have to earn your salvation. Yes, faith. And the church helps through the sacraments, but it's up to you. It's ultimately, you are measured by your good deeds. But here he read the Bible. The just shall live by faith. No one is justified by the law, and the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith, Paul wrote. In Hebrews, we read this. Now the just shall live by faith. If anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. It's only through faith. Faith alone. Now, our British friends, you know, we call a period, that little dot at the end of a sentence. I like the way the British call it. They call it a full stop. I haven't tried that. You know, when I'm dictating a text, you know, and I tell it comma, period, um, new line. I ought to try full stop and see if that works. Maybe I'd have to be in England. But, but anyway, Paul, Paul, Luther could have come to the end of Romans 1.17, the just shall live by faith, full stop. But he wasn't British. He was German. And he thought Latin because that was the language of the scholars. And so he, the word that came to his mind was sola, faith alone. The just shall live by faith. And that's the end of the sentence. It's by faith. It's by faith that we're saved. Here are Luther's words. I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God. Because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that although an impeccable monk I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience and I had no confidence that my marriage would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I, I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Have you ever read that? You think, I... I It's in here somewhere. I'm not getting it, but if I could understand this, I would get it. And so as Paul is agonizing because he brought so much to the text instead of letting the text speak for itself. Night and day, he says, I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning and whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. So instead of the righteousness of God being his enemy because it was a standard he could never meet, he came to understand the righteousness of God is his gift to anyone who will receive it with open hands of faith alone, faith alone. For many of us, I hate to say it's almost ho-hum, of course we're saved by faith alone. But it's never ho-hum, really. The gospel is a glorious message. That's why Paul says as he writes in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. That's a a, a way of saying, I am thrilled with the gospel. That's like, you know, you go to the finest restaurant and you eat their finest meal and say, that's not bad. What you're really saying is, that's good. And when he's saying, I'm not ashamed, he says, this is my glory. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. And then he goes on for the the, the wrath of God. God has been displayed against all unrighteousness. But in the gospel is salvation. Paul, I mean, Luther finally got it. Isn't that sad? Here was a priest. And here was a professor of theology. And the most simple, humble truth was veiled in darkness. Darkness of a church that had been Pressing him, darkness of a heart that was dead. And then those wonderful words that I love in the book of Ephesians, but God. God turned on the light of his soul when he understood the righteousness of God is his gift received by faith. The just shall live by faith. Alone. Alone. As I began, we stand on the shoulders of the giants that have come before us. I think it's a mistake sometimes to ignore our history. Right now, that's the course I'm teaching by Zoom in Nepal. It's church history. I get one semester, I get four weeks to cram 2,000 years in, in, and they're probably thinking this is hard for them too. But it's important we know the giants, we know the background, and if you think any field at all, you always include this, the history of that topic. You study science. I remember one of those general biology classes I took. Starts off with how things developed when I was studying bacteriology. They talked about how germ theory was discovered. Um, If if you're going to play chess with any seriousness, you go back and you study the chess giants and and memorize their strategies. And for some of you, you're thinking, that sounds like torment. (laughs) If you're a chess kind of person, oh, that's really great. And they'll name the names and the names that, Oh, that's this guy's strategy. I looked up one time the, the war college of the United States Army. The first course they teach, the first things they address they go back to the battles fought by the ancient Greeks. They study the history, and so we, as believers, we are we we're making a mistake when we ignore history. We can learn from what God has been teaching the church over the last two thousand years. We can learn from the, the 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 mistakes and errors and heresies that have come up and how they've been answered. Martin Luther would say, please, please. You know, He hated the idea that they named a denomination after him. He did not like the idea of calling it Lutheran churches. It wasn't about a man. He wanted the glory to go to God, to Jesus Christ. But we could learn. We could learn from these faithful men and women of history. And I think we should know and learn from them. Let them mentor us. The key thing I want us to glean out of this, even though I spent so much time talking about a man, the key to the Reformation is the Bible. How is it that the Reformation took off? Luther, the the morning star, the beginning light, I mean, not Luther, Wycliffe, what did he do? He was studying and translating the Bible. Huss, what was it that got to him? He started translating the Bible into his language. And Luther... He was locked up in a room to study the text so he could teach at the university, the Bible. And so we need to recognize the power of the scriptures. And we need to recognize the importance of studying it, reading it, delving into its depths. God's word, the gospel, is built on the scriptures. That's why, that's what we do we preach the bible here because that's the truth you don't want my thoughts and honestly we don't really want luther's thoughts only if they point us to the scripture one of the things of the reformation is that it was an awareness that man is lost without christ and so i simply do have to ask you have you received the gift that Martin Luther was thrilled to discover. That self, have, have you trusted in Christ as your Savior? When he understood the gospel, he said, Paul opened the doors to heaven to him. That's, that's true. That's true. Have you come to the place in your life when you recognize you are a sinner, God's righteous wrath is rightly upon you, and if you come to him fleeing your sin and fleeing to grace and receive the, the, the gift of salvation... Not through your effort, but through his grace, have you opened your hands to receive the gift by faith alone? And then, one other thing I would say from that verse 17 in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. What does that mean? Later on in chapter 10, Paul says, well, how will they believe unless they hear? How will they hear unless someone is sent to preach? The gospel is revealed from faith to faith, which means we who know the gospel, we who've entered that, day, that door to God's glory in, in, in heaven, we need to share others with others. We need to, by faith, from faith to faith, Point people to Christ. And I said, Luther lived in a time of darkness, and I see our nation, our time, as a time of darkness, spiritually, morally. People are dying in darkness. It's the gospel more than anything else they need. Yes, I said, go out and vote and do vote. That's our responsibility. But no election changes hearts. And what people need is, is Christ and the gospel. Do we look around us and see eternal souls who have one of two destinies and recognize the gospel is the turning point? Martin Luther was fearless and passionate about the Lord and sharing that glorious truth with others. We need that today. May God light a fire in our hearts to share the glorious hope of the gospel with our desperately needing friends, family, and neighbors. Our Father, thank you for these heroes. We look to them for what they are, very imperfect examples. There's not a man in the Bible, not a man in history, except our Lord Jesus Christ, who have lived without sin and failure. and Father, we thank you for these who teach us by their words and teach us by their example. Supremely, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ who didn't just teach but gave us forgiveness at the cost of his own sacrifice. Oh, I pray, Father, that everyone who hears these words comes to know and, or does know Jesus Christ as Savior. And that we who know this glorious truth and life would be bold to share it with others. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord.